Come on. Are you ready, Ben Gibbs? Anytime, Always man. ready. Anytime, right. man. We've been waiting for you to get over here on the couch with us. <laughs> well, welcome to the Darren Wishing Show. Today's guest is David did, Meltzer. Did you just screw up your own name, by the way? I said the Darren Woodson Show. <laughs> the Darren Woodson Show. So, Let hey, David, David, so just so you know, like Ben's only role in this show is to call us out for I'm anything, the ball that, he thinks, I'm anything the ball that he thinks we do wrong. <laughs> And most of the time, he makes them up. Anytime he calls me out, he's making it up for sure. <laughs> that beats the crap out of uh, Stab Boy. I like Ballbuster much better. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, Duke, should I start all over again? Continue your right, read. read. Welcome to the Darren Woodson Show. There you Clean. Go. Today's guest is David Meltzer, who is the co-founder of Sports One Marketing and formerly served as CEO of the renowned Lee Steinberg Sports and Entertainment Agency, which was the inspiration for the movie Jerry Maguire. His life mission is to empower over one billion people to be happy. This simple yet powerful mission has led him on an incredible journey to provide one thing, value. In all his content and communication, that's exactly what you'll receive. As part of the mission, for the past 20 years, he's been providing free weekly trainings to empower others, to empower others to be happy. And I love that part. Love that. That was the wrong burgundy moment, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) You just read what was written down. (laughs) I think that was a typo. See see what? Oh, see, that's what you mean. So you see what I'm dealing with? Hey, I printed out what they sent me. Hey, I printed out what they sent me. (laughs) Hey, Darren, I was so engaged with what you're saying because I'm so excited to have David on that I I didn't even catch that because I'm not looking for the wrong things. Hey, I'm looking to be happy. I'm looking for joy. And I want 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 you to to teach us how to teach Ben to also be happy and not look for the negative things in life. That would be if we can accomplish one thing on this show today, that is it. Man, that's teach us to look, teach Ben to be happy. Let's start with rule one. You know, you cannot find outside of you what you can't find inside of yes, you. Yes, there you go. Be careful what we're projecting on each other. There you go. <laughs> it, it, it's all out of insecurity, honestly. I will, I will tell you this. I, I like to talk shit as much as anyone. I wish I would have put in there F you, San Diego. <laughs> go F yourself, San Diego. <laughs> oh my god so so david we want to go back man into you know there a lot of people know who you are but we want to go back mm-hmm. uh and, and talk about the journey and, and you know where you grew up your family life uh your mother and father you know give us some some background some color of you know where you come from and what that upbringing was like you know it's interesting because there's two things that sign behind me says money doesn't buy happiness or love and that, oh, those are the things I grew up with, happiness, love, and no money. <laughs> and I had a single mom. My, my, mom, my dad left when I was five, uh, six kids, though, five boys and a girl, wow. uh, not very athletic. I, I'm not lying. If I graduated summa cum laude from Harvard, which all my siblings graduated from some Ivy League school summa cum laude, nobody would wink an eye. The fact that I played football in college, and I was an average Division three football player. I played with Vance Mueller. If you remember, oh, yeah. Him, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, so I'm an average division three football. You would think I'm God in my family. That's how little <laughs> talent we have. But academically, I grew up with a mom. It was doctor, lawyer, or failure. It mm. was the fetus isn't fully developed till after graduate school. You can do whatever you want after graduate school. You know, the whole world revolved around my grades, and I was the only one that kind of 
put a different perspective on things. And I'll tell you why, because my mom was extraordinary. Two jobs, pack my dinner in a paper bag, mm. station wagon. She filled up greeting cards at night at the 7-Elevens on those turnstiles. Remember the old turnstiles? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just so we could eat. And then she would spend our food stamps and others just so we could eat. I remember, you know, I like you guys, you know, I get to eat at the greatest restaurants in the world. And I sit there thinking, with tears in my eyes, I remember how happy I was when my mom could afford two large french fries, pour them into a big bowl, and then we'd share them, right? Mm-hmm. And I'd eat fast as shit so I could get it. <laughs> <laughs> that pr- prison style, prison style, right? Like covering it up? Exactly. But I wanted to buy my mom a house and a car. We had a two-bedroom apartment, six kids. You know, it, it, it was not easy, but it was awesome. And the only time I was unhappy was when my mom – you know, car, financial struggles, right? Car breakdown, you know, all these things. And I'd see her crying and I still get choked up. And I thought to myself, man, if I could just buy my mom a house and a car, everything will be perfect in my life. And so I worked really hard. And the advantage of thinking money buys happiness and love. And when you're after money, there is an advantage to it. And I learned my lessons, which we'll get into, I'm sure. But the advantage is this, when you're only about money, you learn to keep your options open. One thing I comparatively looked at with my siblings is because they were so academic, Harvard, Penn, Columbia, doctor, lawyer, failure, their eyes were always like this, right? They were Mm well-trained. I'm going to be a doctor. Everything, there was no other options where I just want to be rich. So, you know, some dude could give me a bag and tell me, run it down to the Lawson's. Here's $5. I'd do it. Uh, But that helped me because when I graduated law school, because I do respect my mom. I, I I do listen to her, but I didn't put as much energy into it. I graduated Tulane, uh, did very well, but I got a job offer to be a litigator, uh, to make 150 grand. By the way, any of you kids out there think you haven't made because you're making 150 grand out out of business school or law school, you're not making shit. You got three (laughs) jobs. You got three jobs that pay 50 grand a piece. Let's just be honest. It's just three jobs in one. And those guys are conning you. So anyway, I, uh, I ended up getting another offer because I wanted to go to the highest bidder. I got a sales offer for 250 grand uh, comp plan in the internet. My mom freaked out, told me 1992, you know, mm. Chrome monitors, you carry your computer on a, yep. a luggage cart. Yep. She said, internet's a fad. You're going to lose all your money. What are you thinking about? I spent my whole life to make you a lawyer and you're going to be a salesperson. The internet's a fad. Nine months out of law school, I took the sales job. I was a millionaire, bought my mom the house in the car, oh, man. paid off my law loans. And here's what's interesting. From 24 on, it reaffirmed money bought love and happiness. So I wasn't one of those people that would back off of it once I made money going, oh yeah, my Ferrari sucks. You know, this jet sucks. Like I was just like, this is, I'm going to make more of this money. (laughs) This is the key to life. And, uh, but it took me a little longer than most. I uh, ended up being the CEO of Samsung's first uh, phone division, uh, the first smartphone in 1999. They called them convergence devices. It was a Mm -hmm. Windows device. Uh, with Samsung. And I was a multimillionaire, married my dream girl. I even thought the the girl that married me was because I had money because I had met her in the fourth grade, sixth grade camp. My best friend asked her to go study for me. And she said in front of everyone, no, tell him to ask me himself. So I threw an egg at her. So she hated me. (laughs) Seems logical though. I mean, that would be my response in sixth grade for sure. (laughs) Throwing eggs. You had She was taller than me at the time too. And she's only five feet today. So you can imagine how small I was. Uh, You had zero game back in the day. (laughs) 
anyway, I ended up that just in my mind, every single thing was about money. And then three things happened in my life to teach me those valuable lessons about my journey, about money and happiness uh, that led me for today. So uh, if you don't mind, I'll kind of go into those. Yes, yeah, please. please. First thing was when I was 30 years old, I got my first birthday present in 20 years from my father. So when my father left me at five, I was crushed because this is the seventies, right? And there's deadbeat dads, but you know, I'm five years old. I'm in the back of the station wagon. All I see is my dad's rich. He has a wife that's closer to my age than his, you know, drives his convertible Cadillac and waves. I've kind of like that movie, the chef, you know, standing in the front yard yeah. and he waves, you know, yeah. forgets me, but I think he's my hero. But at 10 years old, he screws up and he forgets my birthday. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, what really screwed me up was that when I asked him, how could you forget my birthday? He said, and I'm the most like him. So we had a really close relationship, right? He's a sales guy. He's a lawyer. He's an entrepreneur. And he said to me, Dave, I didn't forget your birthday. I don't believe in birthdays, but he was celebrating everyone else's birthday. Mm. So in my mind, I'm like, you are a liar, a cheater, a manipulator, overseller, backend seller. And I certainly felt guilty because I've been sitting in a station wagon at night telling my mom, why can't you be more like dad? Meanwhile, he's not even writing her a check. We're, wow. we're living on food stamp and he's not paying child support. Mm. So at 30 years old, he gives me this gift. I, I open it. I put it on. It's a beautiful sport coat. Fits perfectly. I start crying. My wife, we're newly married. I'm 30. She's like, why are you crying? I go, this is the first gift I've gotten in 20 years. I think my dad gets it. I've been, you know, like any other son, I've really wanted to have a relationship with him. You know, I, I want him to understand who I am. I want him to say that he's proud of me and I'm crying. And I open the jacket to see if it says, you know, especially made for David Meltzer's 30th birthday or Armani. And I look at, and he tore out all the lining, all the pockets. I immediately lose my mind. I call him up. I'm like, dad, why are you punishing me? He's like, happy birthday. I go, yeah, why are you punishing me? He goes, why are you, what are you saying? I said, you gave me a jacket. I can't even wear it. He said, oh, he goes, it's not for wearing. I'm like, what's it for? He said, to remind you, you're just like me. I exploded. I'm like, I'm nothing like you. You're a liar, a cheater, manipulator, back-end seller. I hate you. He said, son, you're just like me. Money does not buy love and happiness. I want you to hang the jacket to remind you every day wow. that you're not going to be the richest man in the cemetery. Mm. You can't take anything with you when you're gone. You got to change. I'm telling you, I know you're a multimillionaire. I know you have a beautiful wife. I know you think you understand, but don't make the same mistakes as me. I wasn't ready to hear it at 30. Yeah. I was ego driven. I was Midas. There was nothing going to tell me. And I told him to F off and I hung up six years later. The second thing happened. Uh, I was working for Lee Steinberg, but at this time now, Warren Moon's my business partner, just gets inducted into the Hall of Fame. 2006, I'm a multimillionaire. I got the best job in the world, access to guys like Darren Woodson, going to every single Super Bowl, Pro Bowl, Masters, Kentucky Derby, Breeders' Cup, ESPYs, Emmys, Oscars, all the Playboy parties, because those were allowed back then. It was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and I asked my best friend, Rob, yes, the guy that asked my wife to go steady, I asked him, Hey man, you want to go to the masters? We got Shannon Sharp, Vincey Glenn, you know, mm, yeah. you get to go to the, the, the cabins. You got a smile on Vincey. Uh, you got the cabins with Curtis strange, you know, the net jet parties. Yeah. He looked at me and he's like, no, nah, I don't want to go. I'm like you love golf. The masters as anyone will tell you is the number one bucket list sporting event. Yeah. It never disappoints. Right. Super Bowls can disappoint all-star games for sure. But, it's, but a masters will never disappoint right. if you go. 
he will not go with me. I'm like, why won't you go? He said, I don't like who you go with and I don't like what you guys are doing. Mm-hmm. And I was like, dude, come on. I'm not doing what those guys are doing. He goes, Dave, you can lie to yourself. I mean, you can lie to me, but don't lie to yourself. You're partying way too much. You're not paying attention. Things are not going to go well for you. And I don't want to be around, man. I, I was distraught mm-hmm. because that was the first time that I realized that I've been living my life and you guys are all athletes. You'll get oh. this. I was taking yes for an answer from everyone. Nobody around me was telling me the truth. Even my wife, my mom, everyone was bought off. And even though they didn't have intentions to be bought off, I enabled them. They were afraid to tell me the truth. And so they just over, you know, overlooked the partying, overlooked the drugs, overlooked the bad behavior. And it was all, oh, well, but nobody except for Rob told me the truth. And then my life would change forever two weeks later. I uh, went to the Grammy Awards with a guy named Little John. And I lied to my wife. I like, yeah, little John. Yeah. Tell you're talking about. Okay. Exactly. We had a little Jaeger, Jaeger party with John at the Grammy Awards. And uh, we actually kicked Ruben Stutter out of the party. But I wasn't <laughs> supposed to be there. My wife said I was partying too much. Wasn't we At this time, I have three girls under eight years old, right? I, three little girls. And my wife's like, you're not paying attention to your family. You're not paying attention to business. You're partying way too much. And I lied to her, said Lee and I had a meeting. And I went to the Grammy Awards, came home wasted at 530 in the morning, and she was waiting for me. And for the first time in our marriage and probably in my life, she told me she wasn't happy. She told me that I better take stock in who I was and what I wanted to become because not only was she going to leave me, but I was going to be dead. And I wish I could have told you even then that I immediately said, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) I literally said, F you. Who do you think you're talking to? Look around you. You know, the whole – I was all over her. How dare you say this to me? I go to bed. I wake up. I'm in the same mode, man. I'm like, I'm going to take her happiness. I'm calling. I went to law school. I got tons of lawyers. I'm going to take her money. I'm going to take her happiness. This is it. F her. She doesn't appreciate everything I've done. And then just as I was about to call no shit – I look over in my closet like the natural's bat, like Wonder Boy. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. a light shining on that goddamn jacket that my dad gave me. And I looked wow. at that jacket and my life changed because I looked at it and I'm like, oh, shit. I'm like, I literally, I don't hate my father. I hate myself. I'm the liar. I'm the cheater. I'm the back-end seller, overseller, manipulator. I got to literally take hold or I'm literally going to lose everything, including myself. And that's when I just sat down, started outlining values, taking stock in who I was. And it took me a while. I started implementing them, save my marriage, save my family, save my own life, uh, save my job with Lee, <laughs> mm. uh, all, all the great things that happened. And it didn't happen overnight. You know, I lost over $100 million. I'm one of the few guys, I'll tell you, I bottomed out in 2006, but I lost over $100 million in 2008. But through those same principles I lost, same values, I've been able to rebuild everything bitter, bigger and better by helping tons of people to make their own money, elevating others to elevate myself. And that's really what I do all day long through TV shows, podcasts, all the things that I'm involved with is to educate people about these values and daily practices that really empower you to not only be happy, but to be kind to your future self and do good deeds. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But, but you know what, man, there's a lot. To Gosh, I was going to say, I, I, <laughs> we're going to go back on you. We're going to peel yeah. this onion back a little bit. You know, I, I want to go back as far as, you know, there had to be 
reminders other than just those two there had to be points in your life when you woke up in the morning you said man i'm in a hotel somewhere and you're like hey this this ain't this ain't scalable i can't continue this i mean were there any other points or messages that were out there that were you know that people were sending to you so here's the interesting thing that's that was difficult and and you know lee is an admitted alcoholic so I'm, I'm around that even, right? And, and Warren, Warren party some, uh, you know, but he has the stamina of like a 24 year old. The guy never had a beer till he, you know, finished playing at 44, but that guy likes the, he's one of those guys that'll stay out. He won't really party, but he'll stay out till four and then go get pizza till seven in the morning. Um, and the problem with all three of us is we didn't really get hung over and we both had high energy. So we didn't miss things. I was what I would call a functioning idiot. Uh, you know, drugs, alcohol, but I was showing up at 7am. I never missed a meeting. Uh, you know, there's times I didn't feel that well about the partying. Mm -hmm. The part that really bothered me was the things that I would do that, that weren't really on the drug or alcohol side. It was more on, you know, hanging out, being at a strip club, for example, right. Mm -hmm. I adore my wife and, and I'm a follower, like I'm a pleaser. So I remember going to clubs and, you know, there's girls and everything that happens in there in miserable the whole time, still drinking, still partying, doing all kinds of stuff, pretending like, but in my head, I'm literally saying to myself, why are you doing this? Yeah. You should be at home. All, and, and that happened a lot of my life. I would ask myself, everyone else was jealous of what I was doing. I was at the Super Bowl, and in my heart and soul, I just wanted to be at home with my family. And as much as I learned that lesson, even during COVID, I thought I had great balance. I even learned how much I was missing out because of COVID because I got yeah. to have dinner. I, I'll tell you right now, and you guys can hold me to this. You guys could give me sideline passes to a Super Bowl, the wheels up party, whatever else I go to, or I have a choice to have dinner with all for my children and my wife. I'm at home having dinner with my kids. That's how much I've learned to value it. And that's just recently because of COVID that I would give up something like that to have dinner. That's how much has changed. Yeah. Talk about, you know, you said early on when you were a kid, you, your ambition was to make money because you, you watched your mother who worked her tail off to, to, you know, provide for you guys to create successful individuals and, and it was money. But talk about, you know, when you realize the emptiness of chasing that, and you alluded to it very, very early in the conversation, but, you know, talk about how it escalates, right? Okay, I make, I've got a hundred million. Okay, then I've got this, th this benefit that comes with having money. Then I've got this, then I've got, but the search for constantly wanting something more until you get that perspective that you receive, that you got, you know, coming home, uh, you know, coming home to your wife after lying about the Grammys and realizing that like, like that gave me less happiness than like you said, when you were poor and at home with your family, you were always happy and you yeah. didn't have anything. So what did it take after finding that success, but realizing that if I keep chasing that more money, that all that's going to lead to is destruction. And the way that I've analyzed it is three worlds. And I encourage people to identify what world they live in and what times we don't always live in these three worlds at one time you, you switch them, but there's a world of not enough. And you can find yourself in this world where you live as a victim and you can have millions of dollars and live in the world and not enough. You guys yeah. know these guys with $40 million houses and they yeah. just don't have enough. Mm -hmm. They're a victim. Everything's happening to them. Right. And yet they seem to materially have a ton, but there's a world of not enough, a scarce world where people just need more and more and more. Then there's this world that I lived a long time in, which I call the world of just enough. And this is where, Money is interesting because money is a currency. It's an object of energy that we get into the flow to get what we want. But 
there's a little bit of faith as well. Faith. Whoa, wait, 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 wait a minute. Say that yeah. again. Say that again. Money's a what? It's a currency, right? Everyone knows they call right. money a currency because it's an object of energy <laughs> that you put into energy. the flow to get what you want. Uh, mm-hmm. It's in the current and, the, and it gets what you want. Wow. Well, okay. faith, faith is a currency to me. Faith, faith is an object of energy that I put into the flow to get what I want. Wow. It's just much more powerful. And there's a blend that started happening. And there's this world of just enough where, and, and you guys might recognize this from some of your uh, friends. I'm sure you weren't like this, but buying <laughs> things you don't need buying more things when you weren't happy, buying different things when you weren't happy, buying things to impress other people. And here's the worst one. I was buying things to impress people I didn't even like. Mm. That's how much I was living in the world of just enough. Everything was for me. And here's another interesting paradigm, because this is a terrific question. Giving, I was extremely philanthropic, but I was giving for the wrong reasons because I'd always learned the more you give, the more you get. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that seems logical. I think that statement destroys people because they don't understand that you actually have to receive so you can give. Yeah. So I shifted my paradigm from, you know, giving is a trade. The more I give, the more I get. It's a negotiation. It's a trade. You know, I, I'll give my brother a house, but I want the recognition. I'll give my mom this, but I want her to acknowledge I'm her favorite child. I'll give to the, the church, but they better put my name up on the pew. You know, yeah. all yeah. These, this is the way I used to give. Once I decided that I lived not in the world of to me or for me, but this new world of more than enough, everything was going to come through me. I was so faithful that I believe that the more I receive, the more I could give. And it takes a lot of faith because you have to have faith in yourself that you truly have the intent that you're going to receive. And I'll tell you, Warren Buffett to me is the classic example of this. Warren Buffett, I'm 52 years old. When he was my age, he got a ton of crap from people. And the reason was he wasn't philanthropic. He he wasn't giving his money away. But it's because he understood the principle of acceleration growth and compound interest. He understood that every dollar he gave you a charity today would be $1,000 when he was 86, and he'd be one of the richest men in the world 30 years if people would be patient, and he could use that as a platform to convince other billionaires to give all their wealth Hmm, away like he would. And trust me, when Warren Buffett dies, he will be the greatest donor of the entire world of all times, not just for the billions that he's giving away to to everybody, but to inspire all the Hmm. other billionaires to give at least half of their money away. It's going to equal trillions of dollars of an impact for a guy who had to take heat. But you guys all know, especially playing sports, they laugh at you, they make fun of you, they scoff at you, and then they applaud you. And I I applaud uh, Warren Buffett for that as well. For me, though, that paradigm, I shifted. I'm a receiver. Mm -hmm. I I literally, I try to get as much as I can with complete confidence to allow it to come through me with appreciation, gratitude, and my own values and give it away. Nothing stays with me. Mm -hmm. And the, an interesting thing about money, money doesn't buy love, but it allows you to shop. It's a currency. And if you shop for the right things, it will make you happy. So money's still really important to me because I can shop for community centers in Africa. We built a university mm, in Africa. Yeah. I'm yeah. the chief chancellor, junior achievement university, you know, hundred million kids learning how to be entrepreneurs. I truly believe entrepreneurs will save the world. So I'm heavily invested into young entrepreneurs, women entrepreneurs, socially economically diverse entrepreneurs, the people that are going to change the world, mm. and then they get to make the decisions. Mm. So I want to go back. Here's one of the things that, it, you know, what, let me ask you this, Dave. When was the time that you realized when you were a kid that you were poor? 
when kids laughed at the car, like I, I, when I went, drove up to school and I was embarrassed to get out of the car and they made fun of me. Didn't you say something? Oh, man. My mom used to drive this beat up Nova. And I used to tell her to drop me off down the street, yeah. around the corner, and let me walk up to school. Because that thing made so much noise, and it smoked, and it had no hubcaps. You know, it was, you. it was Dude. had bullet holes on the side of it. It was ragged. Dude, my junior year in high school, I had to drive the family minivan. That, I didn't have a car. And so I would literally, do, I would do the same you thing. You win. I, I would <laughs> Minivan park. always wins. I'm not joking. I would park down the street, just like you said. I wouldn't park anywhere near the school, and I would just walk down the street to yeah. the school. I didn't want anybody to know. Yeah. That's a side tangent, but that's funny <laughs> that we so had true. that same experience. I mean, it's the same thing. That's why I asked, you know, when did you know this? Because, and this is the reason why I asked. Your story is similar to my story in the fact that I didn't, I, I realized that I was poor. Uh, because of the car we drove and, and the clothes I was wearing and, and that, and it, but it took a while. It took me up until I was, you know, maybe sixth grade to figure that out. Right. But then I became urgent and money became, once I made a little money, then it became, my focus became, I need to make more because that's happiness. And I'm watching other people in the neighborhood, whether it be a drug dealer, he has money, he has women, he has the nice car, that's happiness. And I kept seeing these things that are right in front of me. So how do you tell a kid seven, in seventh, eighth grade, you know, freshman in high school, what do you tell a kid about uh, those resources, money and, and what, it, you know, what happiness is? How do, you, how do you approach that conversation? You know, I, I teach people to get what you want and learn from it. And I think the problem that we do is we detach that, that famous part of learning from it. A Ferrari is a terrific thing if you learn from it. You know, there's tons of people who make way more than all of us buying and selling Ferraris. The Ferrari's not the problem. It's the fact that if you have it and you attribute the ego to it, meaning yep. three things that we do, our employment status, that's what we're worried about. Mm -hmm. You know, what do we do? Everyone defines themselves. Hey, I'm a doctor. I'm a lawyer. I'm this, you know, I'm a CEO of this company. Then we have the G, what do you got? Where the Ferraris come in or the diamond watches and the gold chains. And then the real damaging one, which attributes to all. So that's E for employment status, G for what you got and O for what other people think. I think what I teach the young people where I see them falling down is two areas. One, they're quitters, mm -hmm. which is the biggest problem of everybody. 99% mm -hmm. of the people quit. You guys know this in sports before yep. they're 25% of the way there. And then of the 1%, another 99% quit before they're 50% of the way there. And it's the 1% of the 1% that have a desire to must be what they can be. And so that's what I want to teach the kids, that desire of consistent, persistent behavior. And then on top of it, how do they enjoy it? And so I say things like, hey, look, these three guys here and I, our lives may seem unbelievably great, but the same percentage of our lives today sucks as it did when we were five. Mm -hmm. The same exact percentage. The difference is we've learned that pain is not a stop sign to us. Mm -hmm. All it is is it, it's a turn signal. It's an indicator. It's telling you, hey, dummy, you got a lesson to learn. I got a better place to put you. Here's a little turn signal. I'm going to push you in a better direction. So in other words, this is where the currency of faith comes in for these young people. I teach them, number one, be happy where you're at. You're at the right way at the perfect time. 
Yeah. Angle to what you want. Angle to what you want with that desire that you must be what you can be. But here's the key kicker for everyone. Whether you're buying stuff and you see the guys with the gold, you got to have faith on one thing, that you're going to end up somewhere better than you even are angling towards if you enjoy the consistent, persistent pursuit of your potential. If you realize pain is just an indicator, a turn signal, and suffering is the process to find the lesson in the pain, to find the light in the pain, to find the love in the pain, the indicator, that's what suffering is. So suffering and pain are part of my life today. I just have a completely different mindset, heart set, and a conscious competency about what to do with it. Yeah. David, I mean, I know you talked about your, you know, 24 to 36 as, as some years that, okay, hey, maybe I struggled in some decisions I made. But I don't want to overlook the fact that you built an ex- in incredibly successful career. And there were some incredibly successful traits that you possessed in that time frame that allowed you to do that. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that, but then also talk about the benefits of those struggles that you had and what that's kind of turned you into today and why that's helped form the man that you are and the generosity. And I say unconditional generosity because I do want to highlight that, right? There's conditional generosity that you're talking about, like, hey, what, what do I get from it? Or what's the notoriety? The unconditional generosity. That's, that's what I love that you said. But when you graduated college, obviously, you know, you're going through, you know, Tulane and, um, you know, Matt Forte, shout out to, shout out to my guy over there. Uh, second now, per, second most famous person that I know from <laughs> Tulane. So Matt, you're number two now. Um, but, you know, talk about graduating there, but what, what were some of the things that you did that applied that, that you applied to the sales job that you took that allowed you to elevate as fast as you did? Well, I started with the power of 64, which led to five daily practices. So I think still the power of 64 is the smartest thing I did at 24. And here's what I did. I got this great job for 250 grand as a comp plan. All the other people were 40, 50 year old lawyers. They only hired lawyers to sell this stuff. They wanted me to be a four year litigator before giving me the job. I literally got the job. You're going to love this story. The EVP's old school, right? Mm-hmm. He, he, I'm in my final interview. He, he says, you got a picture of your girlfriend? This is pre-phone days. So mm-hmm. you carry these little in pictures. In the wallet. Way. <laughs> the yeah. little flip, wallet. Their flips, yeah. <laughs> I, I took out my girlfriend and the EVP of the company, right? A company that sold three years later for $3.4 billion. So it's no joke company. Mm-hmm. He, he looked at the picture. He goes, you're hired. I said, what are you talking about? I've been through like three months of interviews. You're going to hire me off of that picture? He goes, yeah. He goes, if an ugly effort like you can get a girl like this, you absolutely can sell. You can sell. You can sell. And so knowing that I could sell was one thing. But how I made the money, listen up, everybody, because this is the math of how you're successful. I said, on average, if they're lucky, most of these people selling here are going to be eight hours productive a day, five days a week. So they're telling me in 40 productive hours a week, I should make $250,000 to keep my job. That, that's what the sales game's mm-hmm. about, right? Mm-hmm. And now I'm excited about that. I would have, in my mind, worked for the expense account, which was like 80 grand. I would have worked for that. But shit, <laughs> 250, I'm in. Well, here's what I said. I know one thing. I, in order for me to play college football, I had to be more productive. Meaning yeah. I, I had to put it, the hours in. I had no problem. I sat my junior and uh, third year in law school on the bed crying to God saying, God, I will shovel shit with my hands six days a week, 12 hours a day. If you allow me to buy my mom a house in a car, Mm. I would, I I would, and I would be grateful. I would wake up every morning and thank you. Go to bed every night and thank you, God. Just give me this opportunity to buy my mom. 
So that's where my mindset was. So 16 hours productivity a day was nothing to me, especially mm. when I'm just talking to people, not shoveling shit with my hands. Yeah. So then I said, what if I practice this like I practice football? I have way more talent at this than I did at football. What if I practice it every single day with the same desire that I did to be the best that I could be? What if I did that? I would be twice as efficient as these idiots. So mm. now I've got 32 hours of productivity in a day compared to their eight. Then I said, with that practice, I know comes statistical success. So every 10 sales, if they're getting two from every 10 appointments, I'm going to get four. I'm going to be twice as statistically successful, 64 hours of productivity a day. Then here's a crucial difference in my life. Since I've been 24, I don't work. I see things as activity I get paid for, activity I don't get paid for. I enjoy, I vacation every day. I think two minutes a day is worth more than two hours on a Saturday. I'm a seven day a week guy. And so seven days a week, 64 hours of productivity, that's eight hours of productivity, eight days of productivity in every one day times seven, 56 days of productivity a week is what I was giving them for that Mm -hmm. money. So when I made over a million dollars in nine months and they gave me all these awards and accolades going, dude, you blew out the comp plan. Congratulations. We're going to cut your territory and raise your, your commission, (laughs) which I didn't understand at 24, but I learned quickly what sandbagging was. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) I, I, I sat there laughing in my head going, these guys are idiots. I'm like, I didn't blow out their comp plan. I literally produced 10 years of work in nine months. Yeah. I was well below the comp plan when you think about the production that I was supposed to have, mm. but I beat them with math. And I have been that type of person that studies my calendar. And here's the five uh, daily practices, taking inventory of your values. Uh, one of the biggest things is we always, uh, we don't know what we want. You know, they talk about the why all the time. I'm a what person. Once I know what I want, I'll tell you why I want it. But mm. most people, you ask them right now, what do you guys want to do? I don't know. Where do you want to eat? I don't know. What do you want to eat? I, I think about what every day, personal, experiential, giving and receiving values. And I'm not afraid of being a hypocrite. I got tons of my friends like you guys that will sit here and watch this show and go, oh, my God, I've known David Meltzer since he was 18. He's so full of shit. Yes. Yeah. I was. You have a snapshot of me at 18. I am a hypocrite. Guess what? I've learned a ton since I've been 18. And I hope you have too, but people love to judge you off of like a snapshot of what what I said 27 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's so true. But people are afraid to be a hypocrite and just tell, you know what? I didn't know what the heck I was talking about that then. You're right. And I do it all the time. Almost every day I learn from what I'm doing too. This is a key one. Ask. I'm a big believer. You learn this question. Do you know anyone that can help me? Especially today in person on the phone, email, social media, radio, print TV. People aren't asking for help. You guys love to help people. I love to help people. Nobody asks. And on average, everyone knows a thousand people today. When we were young, we were lucky if our, you know, friends knew a card game, a golf game, you know, a church group, they got like six guys that could help me out. My 10 year old has like a thousand followers. If I need help, I'm like, come on. So ask for help. The third thing, how do you, I want to stop you at ask because I don't want to lose momentum on this, but how do you ask in a way though, that is not, um, uh, premature, Cause there's, yeah. there's so many times, right? These networkers that like, they want to, Hey, I want to get into your network and I want, you know, the corny, like, so yeah. how do you ask in a way that is genuine? And, and, and so how do you, how would you go about that and coach that? One of my favorite lessons is be more interested than interesting. 
And mm-hmm. so I have a templated way. I am truly, I'd like to say, hey, what are you, what are you doing today? Hey, where are you from? What are you doing? What do you like about that? See, what happens mm-hmm. is when we're asking someone, they're talking about their favorite subject themselves. And when we start asking them what they like and they don't like, we get an emotional attachment. And people buy on emotion for logical reasons. People will help someone they're emotionally attached to. Yeah. And so when we get to the points of, hey, what do you like about that? What don't you like? Would it help you if I did this for you? Would it help you if I introduced you? For, because by being more interested than interesting, asking open-ended questions, then utilizing closed-ended questions with emotional attachment, you'll start seeing synergistic supplementary and alignment between your values and them or something you can do for them. Mm-hmm. Then it's so natural to ask a really simple question, which is, Oh, by the way, do you know anyone that can help me? Mm-hmm. Right? You don't ask yeah. them for help. Right. Darren, you know anyone that can help me? I'm looking for someone. Now, by doing that, you've made a, a major transition in perspective because most people in the world see everyone as a gatekeeper. I got to go over them, through yeah. them, under them, con them, oversell them, back and sell them, manipulate them, lie to them. I shifted that perspective in my life. And I practice doing all those things for a long time. I shifted it to everybody in my life as a sponsor or a power sponsor. A tree has no branches to me. One branch never would stop another branch from feeding. It would kill itself. It would never fight, attack Mm. each other. Mm -hmm. So I have changed my own mindset inside that everyone is there to help me, but I'm also here to help you. That's a hell of a mindset. That's a hell of a mindset change because now, even because in life, I think there is a lot of times, well, fear is one thing that basically stops us from doing what we want, right? Because of the fear of rejection or whatnot, right? So you've, you've put everyone on the same level. There is no one that's on a different level than where you are. And that's huge. That's, mm-hmm. that's something that we all have to adjust because I, I don't know how many times, like I, if I met Michael, or Michael Jordan right now, I'd probably say, oh my God, he's on a different level, right? And that's not. He is. He's probably the one that is. Yeah. So I'll just. No, yeah, I'll, I'll agree with that. But, but, that's, but it's. But it's right, like, bad, bad example. Okay, let's reel that one back. Okay, maybe not him. Okay, but that's but that's the mentality of, of our of our young kids now, and I think it's with maturity is when you get to a point when you get a little older, you get a little gray hair, you start to think, wait a minute, I mean, this guy is no different than yeah. who than what I am, and. I, I need to get something out of him. Like there's some value that he can bring me. So it doesn't matter if it's David Meltzer or if it's a Michael Jordan. It's go, just mm-hmm. ask. But just also ask you can bring value level. to that same guy that Absolutely. could be intimidating. Yes. Yeah. You know what I also find interesting and all the, I'm blessed to be around successful people like you, people mm-hmm. that have what I call a spirit of excellence, right? I work with the Pro Football Hall of Fame, which Darren should be in, by the way. Yeah. And uh, it's mean, a whole other episode kiss. we're doing. I got my, my best <laughs> kiss of my life from Michael Irvin, by the way, at the oh, Hall of Fame. Wow. Right there. <laughs> On the mouth. <laughs> On yeah. The mouth. That sounds like my. <laughs> I tell my wife all the time, well, I've only had one better kiss than you. And, <laughs> and Warren Moon, my partner, is like, dude, you got serious problems. David, pause. <laughs> I, I, I gotta be honest it was amazing uh, <laughs> anyway though the, the one common denominator is this everyone with the spirit of excellence we all got here by asking and getting and yeah. receiving help right. and so when mm-hmm. someone asks us it even means more to a successful person someone that sits in the situation you want to be in because those people acknowledge how they got there yeah. with faith with help 
And they're the first people who are going to want to help. What do people do that don't, that they ask too low and those people are, don't have anything to give, right? They're worried about themselves. They're living in the world of not enough where you should be asking everyone that lives in this abundant world for help because they know how they got there and they're more than willing to help you do the same thing. It's a really difficult thing. I think it's a counterintuitive thing, but it's changed my life. And I'm 52 years old. I still check my sent box in my emails to see Mm -hmm. how many asks I have. How many times I say, Hey, you don't want to help me. I'm building a village in Africa. You don't want to help me. I need to donate some books. You don't want to help me. I'm looking for this. And I'm obviously on the other side asking, Hey, is there anything I could be of service or value to you? But I'm usually less obsequious. I ask these open-ended questions because once I'm interested in someone, I can always find some way I can help them. Yes. Yeah. Well, I hate to, I hate to derail. So number three. So after ask, number three, sorry. So uh, two was asked, three is being a student. I have a mathematical equation of luck. You're going to like this one. What you pay attention to, Darren, you talked about this earlier. What I pay attention to and what I give intention to, what I think, say, do, believe, and my personality traits, characteristics, obsessions, and addictions, all focused in on that one thing, attention plus intention equals coincidence. That's the mathematical Mm, formula of luck. Everybody that's lucky that gets what they want in life or more they pay attention and give intention to what they want. Not what other people want for you, not what you're missing in your life, not what you don't want, because those will all come just as quickly. You pay attention and give intention to what's missing in your life, you're going to get more of what's missing or what you don't want or what your parents want for you, and you're going to resent it. But if you pay attention and give intention to what you want, the fourth one you guys will love, I hate statistics. 99% of all statistics are made up. That's the only statistic I like. <laughs> but and then I owned a golf course. I started playing golf. I owned a golf course. I realized there was one statistic to be true. That's 100% of all my short putts never went in. I've never seen one go in. <laughs> the but 1% now, right there. The 1%. I finally, got stat, I got, finally got stats on my side. Here's the best one. 100% of the things I do now get done. And the difference between successful people and everybody else, successful people get shit done. Mm. And so I have a do it now philosophy. I ask myself, can I do it now according to the values that I took inventory at the beginning of the day? And if I can, I do it because I save twice as much time with much more statistical success. And if I can't do it, it goes into my calendar to study for tomorrow. I study what I have planned, what I don't have planned in my sleep. And the last thing changed my life It's the best practice uh, in my life. It's called practicing ending fear. I I consider myself a ferocious Buddha. And when I say that, it's because of, one, I practice four steps in, in ending fear. Identify fear. There's two types of fear. Primal fear, fight, flight, feed, and the other F word. And then there's secondary fears, which is where most people waste their entire life, money, resources, and relationships. The secondary fears include things like this, the need to be right, the need to be offended. I mean, I wish I could feed the world with the need of being hungry as fast as the need to be offended is. You walk outside with the need to be offended, it takes 0.1 seconds to be offended, (laughs) especially today. Uh, The need to be separate, (laughs) inferior, superior, anxious, frustrated, angry, guilty, resentful, all of these feelings, if you added up all the time, emotion, energy, relationships, and money you wasted in that space, We all would be the richest men in the world. That's how much productivity you lost in your life. So I, number one, practice identifying when I'm in that mindset, when I'm in ego-based consciousness, and then I'm ferocious because 
Number two, which is the hardest thing I've ever had to do, instead of trying to resist it, which is actually easy, right? Or to accelerate into the way wrong direction. And if anyone's been married or had a girlfriend and got into an argument where you're like literally in your own head going, what did I just say? (laughs) You know, and you're just like, are you kidding me? How did I get here? Like, all I did was miss an exit and now I'm getting divorced. How'd this happen? (laughs) (laughs) You'll learn stop. And so stopping is a ferocious thing. And then what I say is go to your higher frequency, which is dropping to neutral. Uh, Trevor Moad and I went to college together. Mm -hmm. He's Russell Wilson's neutrality coach. Yeah, We we had him on our show. Great guy. Great guy. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, neutrality is the highest frequency. Mm. So I stop, I drop into neutral, I breathe through my nose, over my eyes, out through my mouth, like a Buddha. And once I get calm and in the flow, I then roll in the right trajectory where I wanted to be, angling to what I want with faith that I'm gonna end up somewhere better. And the cool thing is, is that when your mind, body, and soul are in ego-based consciousness, it's on fire. So what do we do when we're on fire? Stop, Drop. drop and roll. Mm. And that's been the practice of my life. And it's so subtle. I, I know I got a couple of minutes. I got to share this quick story of how this changed my life. Cause most people don't, they, they hear it. Uh, but like Lou Holt said, right. It's not what I say. It's what they hear. So I want to tell you a quick story. You know, I wake up at 4am meditate and then go work out. Saturday came, it was four 30 in the morning. I'm at my highest frequency, ready to go spend a minimum of an hour on my health. And my 17 year old daughter's car is missing. I immediately go into ego-based consciousness. I'm picking up the phone and I'm about to scream at her, where the F are you? Where the F is your car? And I stop, which was not easy. I breathe. I got to neutral, just like Trevor taught me. And I said to myself, why are you so mad? I'm like, I'm not mad. I'm terrified, right? This Mm -hmm. is one of the people that are most important in my life that I'm responsible for. I'm terrified. I'm not mad. And why are you going to yell at somebody that you care that much about? Take a deep breath. So I breathe. I called her. I said, hey, Mia. She was not awake. Yeah. I go, Where are you? In my bed. Where's your car? Oh, dad, you told me when kids were drinking that uh, I should leave my car in Uber home. I shouldn't mm. drive with people that are drinking. Now, I'm not stupid. I know what kids are drinking means. I then said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. Oh, I love you, daddy. I love you, too. Now, that may not seem that significant, but think Mm. about how the real world works. Yeah. If I would have done what I wanted to do, ego, where the F are you? I'm in my room. Where's your car? You told me, Dad, when kids are, you were drinking. I know you were drinking. I'm going to take your car. I'm going to take your phone. Mm. You're, you can't, right? And and I guarantee it, it wasn't ending with, I love you, Daddy. Right. Right. But here's what's even worse this is why people's lives change if they don't have a practice of ending fear. If next time she's with kids that are drinking, she'll say to herself, I do not want to disappoint my dad. Yes. I don't want to lose my car. I don't want to lose my phone. I'm going to drive home. Yeah. And God knows in that one little subtle mistake of ego that my life would change forever. Her life would change forever. Or even worse, someone that we never even had met life would change forever because I couldn't control my fear. Yeah. And that happens in every aspect of everyone's life. And if you're going to take away a lesson, practice ending fear every day. It's something just like going to the golf range. You're going to get better at it. And instead of spending like me years and then, you know, months and then weeks and then days and hours, I spend minutes and moments every day in fear. I have fear, Mm -hmm. 
I'm afraid of a ton of stuff. I have insecurities. I get resentful and offended, but I'm only spending minutes and moments there, not hours, weeks, months, and years like oh, I used to. Yeah. Yeah. Stop. Limiting the, hey, look, I, we only have a few Wait. minutes. So I, <laughs> that look, was I need to, an absolute power bomb of, <laughs> of knowledge and information. <laughs> and there's so much more that I want to grab from, from you, David. I'll come but back. I, I'll come back. No, okay. but, I, but I need to do this. Hey, hey, he I, said it. You guys, he said you, it. You did say you're coming back. And you you got to let me ask my question before he leaves. No, okay. Yeah. Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah. But I want to talk about pre-Friday training because there's yeah. a lot of people right now that don't have access or don't know where you are. Let's talk about the pre-Friday training. Yeah. So over 20 years ago, I started training people in sales for free. I thought that was the key. Make a lot of money, help a lot of people and have a lot of fun was my mission statement. So I was going to teach people how important sales was. Uh, years ago, my daughter, her 12 year old friend committed suicide and I couldn't imagine why a 12 year old would kill themselves. And I went on a bunch of research for this mission to make people happy. So now I give training very pragmatic. I do pitch training, sales training, scaling a business training, but I also do procrastination training, ultimate ego training every Friday for free. And not only is it cool because now it's on zoom where we have over 20,000 registrants a week that come live at 11 AM every Friday Pacific, but Spotify features all of them as a podcast. Now the playbook, my podcast, which you guys got to come on, by the way, mm, yes. uh, we'll get you on the playbook. And the coolest thing about my career is that, you know, I started the playbook to give the inside playbook to people like you and Darren, you know, what made you successful. And the coolest thing is I've had everyone from, you know, Ray Lewis, to Danica Patrick, to Dan Aykroyd, to Cameron Diaz, to Brett Favre. It doesn't matter. But the number one thing people want from the podcast now is the free training replay. Number mm. one down. That makes me so proud that as much as they see the materialistic glamour and glitz that people need help, like you're saying. Yes. So I do it for free. I give all my books for free. So if anyone out there wants a signed copy, I pay for shipping. It's not like a, you know, one of those guys that are standing in front of cars they don't own and houses they don't own going, Hey, I'll give you my book for free. It's just 15 bucks to send it to you. <laughs> no, I'll pay for shipping. I'll sign it. Uh, exercises, guides, and books are always free with me. I literally know and I trust with faith. Here's the funny thing. I literally just am trying to provide value and I've never made more money in my life. Mm. Like, it, it, and it, I just, and I know you got to get there. You can't just believe me because I say, and you can't just give everything away, but I focus on receiving so I can give and I receive so much yeah, and, uh, awesome. and I give it all away, it, it, you know, Luckily, I got three daughters and a wife, so it's easy to to down. Easy, to, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. That, was a, that, was a, that is easy. Yeah, that was a parent joke, guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, we know you got to go. Last question. Last question. We ask every guest this, and I'm interested to see what you're going to say because of just how buttoned up your message is and how how succinct everything is. If you could go back to any point in your life and tell yourself one thing, where do you go and what do you tell yourself? You know, I go to a time in my life where I think I was ready to hear myself. Uh, you know, I'm probably one of the few people, as much as, you know, I, from 24 to 36, I degraded myself. I had an extraordinary time. Like, I appreciate the experience, mm -hmm. and I appreciate it probably more because I lived through it. I think I'd go to that time uh, right at 30 when my dad gave me that jacket, and I'd tell myself, be radically humble. Mm -hmm. This is the time start asking. You can't do this on your own. This is, you're not responsible for everybody. 
You can't do this on your own. You don't owe anybody anything. All these people that are around you saying, hey, I believed in you in elementary school and you're given $10,000 to save their mom's houses and all for your own ego to, to make you feel good. I would have told myself, you ask for help, right? I, I tried to explain this message of radical humility to ask for help, to find people that sit in the situation that I want to be in, not just rejoice in where I was. And I was so proud of myself, but I lost a lot of years there where I had people around me that I could have been learning from instead of teaching and mm. asking for help would have been right there at 30. And I think I also would have saved some years of healing with my father. My, my father and I became very close. He passed two years ago. And I think about, you know, those eight years from 30 to 38 that I wasn't talking to him and I hated him and it was in me thinking he was lost yeah. and I was the one that was lost. And, you know, I, I think, those eight years would have been so beneficial to be healed and to tell myself at 30. Cause I was ready. To, I was ready to hear it. If I could talk to myself. Yeah, man, that's, that's awesome. incredible. Lastly, just again, is there, is there a, a, your website that they can go collect all of this, all the resources you provide links to your, your podcast so on Spotify. Have, I give everything. So my yeah. email and I answer everything myself is David at dmeltzer.com. You will get a short answer, but it will be me. <laughs> <laughs> Efficiency. And then, it, and then it, just to give you a trick too, anyone says, you know, this isn't you. I send a video with my shirt off to you. <laughs> I punish you. Just zoomed in on the left nipple. I'll be emailing you shortly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, and then I have a text community, uh, 949-298-2905, dmeltzer.com for everything else. Or if you forget all that crap, David Meltzer is my name. Thank goodness you can Google, Google me and the Google. Find me right. doing that. That's right. Yeah. I tell you what, man, this was this, this was a jam-packed hour. And you yeah. promised to come back, David. <laughs> yeah, you know. come back. All right. I'll come visit you guys. I want to sit in that living room and do it live. Well, come hopefully on. next time we'll be in our brand we'll new, new studio. studio. We'll yes. be in the studio yeah. by the first of the year. So hey, very good. Well, Dave. you guys come in, come on my show. My my studio's in the new stadium if it ever opens, and I bought a new TV studio too. So you're welcome, California, anytime. Um, and I definitely want you guys to come on the playbook. Oh, Thanks man, again, we'd love man. to. All right. Yeah. David, appreciate you, man. Thanks again. We'll be talking to you. You got it, man. What a great show. Thank you. Thank Thanks you so much. That was awesome. You guys are awesome. Right. Thanks, dude. Take care. Guys. I'll